Man, this psalm is such a blessing. Cause us to worship the Lord and to hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. Amen. God calls us to hate those things that he hates and to love those things that he loves. If God hates evil, we ought to hate evil too. And if he loves good, we are to love all that is good. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for uh, gracing us to see another Lord's Day. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy in waking us up this morning and allowing us to to see another day. And as my old folks would say, have activity of our limbs. Lord, we we praise you and worship you this morning as a church uh, for persevering us through another week. Uh, Many of us have to deal with the drudgery of work, uh, the difficulties that come with just living life in this sinful world. But Lord, we thank you for bringing us through uh, to this day to uh, gather together as the church, as the saints of God, to worship you together, to worship you uh, corporately. And Lord, we praise you this morning that you made the heavens and earth, that clouds and darkness surround you, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, that the earth sees and trembles at your glory, that the mountains melt like wax at your presence. Lord, this this shows us how mighty, how holy, how awesome you are, and how even the earth, even the uh, created world, Lord, worships you. All the animals worship you in their own way. The heavens declare your righteousness, and all of the people see your glory, Lord. There are evidences of you and your glory all around us. Your word calls us to behold our God. Lord, your presence is everywhere, and we thank you, Lord, that you are always with us. And Lord, as a church, as individual members of the church, Lord, we we thank you this morning that that you are you are faithful, that you're you're always with us, that you're always by our side, that you're always faithful, that you're always loving and merciful to your people. Lord, we praise you and worship you and adore you this morning. All glory, all honor. All worth belongs to you. Father, may we bow our our knees and our hearts toward you. And not call people to worship us, but to point them to the only true and living God. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for our members this morning that you be with all of us as I, I pray for us each each day that we all grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pursue a life of holiness and righteousness before you. Lord, that we actively uh, put off sin, put away sin, and put on the righteousness of Christ that has already been credited 
to us, Lord, we're still called uh, to put off the old man and to be renewed in our minds and to put on the new man. It is something that you do through salvation, but it's something that uh, we do as you, you work out what you have put in us. Lord, we ask you to give us, as a church family, uh, individuals and corporately, the mind to resist the temptations that come our way to sin against you. Because, Lord, we have an adversary. His name is uh, Satan, and he seeks to distract us. He desires, Lord, to take our minds off of you and to keep our eyes and hearts focused toward the world and the things of this world. And, Lord, your word tells us that the things of this world are passing away and the fashion of it. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Well, help us to understand as believers that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That we are to evangelize the world, but not be like the world. We are to be separate. We are to live separate lives from there. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So, Lord, help us to pursue those things as uh, we go through this world, as we go through our days and, and, and weeks and months and years. And Father, we pray for our nation, for our leaders, that they worship you as the one true God, that they bow the knee to you, that they um, repent and turn to you. And be converted that their sins may be blotted out, as the scripture says. We pray, Lord, for uh, legislation to come down from Washington and from Montgomery that will promote the flourishing of babies in the womb. That will promote human flourishing uh, without promoting uh, sinful lifestyles. Lord, we pray for legislation that will cause for the flourishing of all of our citizens. And Lord, mostly we pray, uh, also looking abroad to our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ who can't freely worship as we are this Lord's Day, who have to have secret church or who can't gather at all. We pray for the church where they don't have enough Bibles to, to read. We thank you for organizations, Lord, that uh, supply Bibles to those in uh, foreign countries, those Christians in foreign countries, Lord. We pray that you continue to bless them to do that. Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, particularly in, in uh, North Korea and in, in parts of China and parts of the Middle East and Eastern Europe and some parts on the continent of Africa and even down in some parts of South and Central America. Christians are being persecuted around the world. We pray, Lord, for the persecuted church that you, you persevere them in their faith. And, Lord, that you perhaps save their persecutors, save their tormentors, save those who wish to do them harm. But, Lord, give them strength. One thing that they do covet always is our prayers. They don't always ask for money, Lord, but they always ask for prayers because Lord, your word tells us that the prayers of the righteous avail much. 
And prayer is no small thing, Lord. May we not look at prayer as a small thing. We're communicating to our big God who can do everything but fail. And Father, we pray for our sister churches, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer, Christian Fellowship. We pray also, Lord, for Iron City and uh, Mountain View Church and First Baptist uh, Lineville. We pray for all the brothers leading these churches, including here at the Living Church, all the elders, pastors, worship leaders, all who are leading the flock, Lord, that we shepherd the flock of God well with good oversight. That we don't do it for gain, but that we do it for your glory, that we, we work as we're working for our chief shepherd who will reward us for the work that we do as pastors and as men leading your church. Help us, Lord, to lead well, to shepherd well, to disciple well, to, to preach well, to love well. And that within our congregations, Lord, that, that we love well, that we love each other well, that we serve each other well, that we encourage each other well, that we pray for one another well. And there's correction, Lord, that we correct each other in love. But that we be that body that supplies to each other part of the body that the body may grow. And Father, now I pray for the ministry of the word as we look at Nehemiah's protection as he looked to you in time of opposition when the conspiracy uh, came against him. Lord, may we see what it means for us as servants to look to you for protection, to focus on doing your work, to be able to discern the devil's schemes. Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths of this passage this morning. May you be pleased with what comes out of my mouth. Bless our hearing this morning and bless the preaching of your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, let us turn to Nehemiah, the sixth chapter. We're in the sixth chapter of our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we looked last week, the fifth chapter, where the opposition to Nehemiah was uh, starting. And it continues in this chapter that uh, hopefully you read and that we're about to read this morning. Let's find it here. There's that pesky truck again, right? Okay. So this chapter deals with the conspiracy against Nehemiah. And we're going to see how this conspiracy uh, helps shape Nehemiah as God's uh, leader and God's servant as he seeks the Lord's protection. So it says here, beginning at uh, chapter 6, verse 1, I'm reading from the uh, ESV. It says, Now with Sambler and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, 
heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sambalot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messages to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? That's our focus verse, by the way, uh, this morning. Let me read that again. I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah did not wish to discuss anything with the enemies of the Lord. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samblet, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king, he's talking about Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, our God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mechtabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, to such a man as I run away? <laughs> okay. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Y'all see this conspiracy playing out here? For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in a way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember to buy and assemble it, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted me to be afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all the enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of their God, of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was their son-in-law of Shekaniah, the son of Arah, 
and his son Jehodan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Y'all, I'm sure as that scripture was being read, I'm, I hope that when you all read it, that you all saw the conspiracy that was taking place. That um, Sambalit had came to him five different times. So what we see here, uh, the last chapter, chapter five, uh, Nehemiah was addressing the internal conflict among the, the Jewish people and their families. You know, they encountered internal opposition. Now, Nehemiah is encountering external conflict from without. And namely, it was through Tobiah and his companions. And so this is the third time that they have opposed Nehemiah. They just won't stop. They just won't relent at all. So Nehemiah, as we see these observations here, he's confronted with a conspiracy in which his enemies plot to kidnap him <laughs> and do him great harm. They're very crafty in their efforts to harm him. We see that in verses 3, and then verses 8 through 9, and then verses 11 and 13 there. They're very crafty. Now, had that conspiracy succeeded, then it would have caused Nehemiah great physical harm and also political harm because, remember, he was the cupbearer to the king, and the king sent him to Jerusalem to help the Israelites rebuild the wall not to go there and get killed because he was very trustworthy. He was the king's right-hand man, so he would suffer political harm also. But nevertheless, Nehemiah showed great discernment in his dealings with these men. And it shows that he was chosen by God and that the Lord had gave him the discernment to outwit uh, his dealings with, uh, with him, to outwit and not compromise the integrity of the Lord's name. And it takes great discernment to not compromise the Lord's name. Also, as an observation, we see in this chapter, as we saw in chapter four, we see an imprecatory uh, prayer. I uh, bracketed it in my Bible in verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Samuel, O my Lord, according to these things that they did. So he was praying against them, so to speak. He's praying and, and we talked about what an imprecatory prayer is it a is a prayer for God to avenge his people, okay, to kill or get rid of the enemies of his people. That's what we call an imprecatory uh, prayer. He called on God to remember those who, uh, who tried to turn uh, on him and who tried to harm him. He was praying for divine justice and vengeance against the Lord's enemies. Another encouraging observation is the acknowledgement of God by the unbelieving enemies. You see that in verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived, these are the, the heathen nations around them, they perceived that this work was accomplished with the help of who? Our God. Matthew Henry, the 17th century theologian, said this about that. He says, even these heathens had so much sense as to see a special providence of God on the affairs of the church when they did remarkably 
prosper. Then he says to believe that God's work will be perfect. When they perceived that the work of God, when they perceived that this was the work of God, they expected no other that it would go on and prosper. So Matthew Henry was saying that even heathens have the sense to recognize when God is in something, when God has accomplished something for his church. If it were of God, there was no purpose to think of opposing it. The enemy saw that it was the work of God. So guess what? What does the pastor say? They were what? They were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they knew that this was the work of God. That it wasn't just the work of Nehemiah, but it was the work of God. So God was with them. And because God was with them, guess what? They were going to be victorious. They were going to prevail. So the big idea of this passage is that uh, though the Lord's servants will encounter opposition, we will encounter opposition in doing the Lord's work. We always will. But in doing his work, God will protect us from the assaults of the enemy to carry out his plans for the glory of his name. God will deal with our enemies and he will carry out his plans for the glory of his name. God will do it. We must always remember that as believers. No matter what opposition comes up against us, comes up against the church, guess what? God's plans will always prevail. Amen? That's our big idea. So we're going to look at three principles this morning. In light of that, our first principle is that with the Lord's protection, we can relentlessly focus on doing his work. When the messengers were sent to him, Nehemiah sent the message back to them. And what did he say? I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? The Lord's work cannot be accomplished with distractions and frequent sidetracking. It cannot happen. One of Satan's greatest tools is distraction. Can we all agree on that? It is. You know, when I'm praying in the morning, I make sure my phone is upstairs in the kitchen. <laughs> I do. Because the first thing I'll do is go on Twitter, see what's trending on Twitter, and see what people are tweeting. You know, you get all these notifications, the email. You know, if you got a million apps on your phone, you get all these push notifications. Sometimes you may check your mobile app to for, for your bank to see how much money you got, what's come out, or you know what's coming in. You know, you got all these different distractions when you're trying to focus on the Lord. Satan is the master of distraction. He has led many a Christian down the road of distraction. And it's so easy to be distracted. It is so easy. But what we see in Nehemiah here is a relentless focus on doing the Lord's work. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. He was very fervent in that. He cannot come down even after four tries of trying to take him from his work Nehemiah answered the conspirators in the same manner it says that again 
You see that in verse four. They sent to me four times in this way. And what? I answered them in the same manner. He was relentless. He was determined not to be distracted by the schemes of the enemies who were empowered by Satan. He was determined to do the Lord's work. In Christian ministry, in any work that we do, we are going to be tempted by distraction, but we have to be determined. I've been tempted by distraction as a pastor of this church for 11 years, distracted by all types of things, all types of propositions, all types of internal distractions. But I've always been, by God's grace, determined to pursue his work and to do his work. Distractions can come in the home. It can come from a job. It can come from uh, influences. But we have to persevere through those distractions and not let them sidetrack us. They came four times after him. But he answered in the same manner each time. It's like when uh, Satan, uh, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and Satan took him up to the mountain to tempt him. Jesus answered him the same way three times. It is written. It is written. It is written. And you know what? Sometimes there's nothing wrong with sounding like a broken record. If it's a good tune that's being played. That good tune was, I am doing the Lord's work. I'm not coming down. If you have to say that every time, guess what? You say it. That's a good broken record. And we see that through Nehemiah. This should be the focus of every believer in service to the Lord. He answers his conspirators in the same manner. And we also saw this with Christ. From the time that he was a youth, he himself was focused on doing the Lord's work. We see this in Luke 2. In 49, when his parents were looking for him, you all probably remember that he was about 12 years old and they were going uh, to Jerusalem. His parents were looking for him. And it says here in Luke uh, 2 and 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And these were his parents that were looking for him. Okay, then it goes on to say, now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. This was Jesus at age 12. And all who heard him were astonished at his answers and understanding. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So even Christ was focused on doing the Lord's work. 
His parents at that point didn't understand it because they were not thinking with spiritual eyes. Uh, Mary apparently had forgotten the prophecy that the angel had given her while she was pregnant with uh, Christ. But Christ said, I must be about what? My father's business. And that's what he was doing. He himself was focused on what God had called him to do even before his public ministry, which began 18 years later at the age of 30. So all that time before he was 30, he was a carpenter. He was also preparing himself for his public ministry. He was about the father's business. Guess what? We have the father's business too. It is not just in the church realm. And, you know, we talked about that before. There's no such thing as a sacred and secular divide. All of life is a life of worship. You can't put the worldly side on this side and the, the religious side over here. No, all of life is worship. All of life is religion. All of life is duty. When you're at work, you're working to who? The Lord. You're not working for yourself. You're not working for your company or for your boss. You are working for the Lord. Paul tells us that in uh, Colossians 3, 22-25. We're working for the Lord. There's no, there's no, okay, this is the world over here, and I, 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 I can act this way. I can put my Christianity to the side. You know, I can put being a, a, a saint of God to the side when I'm here at work or when I'm with my family or when I'm in my home with my family or my, my husband or my wife or around my children or around my friends. I can, I can be different. But, you know, when I'm in church, I'm doing the Lord's work. No, we're doing the Lord's work all the time. Why? Because we are called of God. If you are a Christian, if you're saved, you are a saint. You are, Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ. And an ambassador is always representing the country in which they are sent from. And because we're ambassadors of Christ, we're always representing Christ and his interests. That's what an ambassador does. They, they represent the interests of the country that they are representing. And as ambassadors of Christ, guess what? We represent Christ and his kingdom interests no matter where we are. So we're always participating in the Lord's work. Always. There's never a time in your life when you're not. When I'm at work, I'm representing Christ's work. When I'm at home with my wife and my children, I'm representing Christ's work. When I'm out in the public square, when I'm going shopping at Sam's, which I'm going to do at about 5.30 today that I do almost every Sunday, guess what? I'm representing the kingdom in the way that I care of myself and the way I interact with people. We're always doing the Lord's work, no matter where we are or what we're doing. So because of that, we can't be distracted in doing his work. We must do what God has called us to do. And I quote this verse all the time, but it still rings true no matter how many times it's repeated in First uh, Corinthians 10 and 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That focus must always be there in doing the Lord's work, in pleasing God. Always. When we're at work, we work to please God. And if we work to please God, guess what? We're going to do good work. Because he's the one who's going to reward us, as Paul 
said, he's the one who's going to reward us. He's the one who's going to tell us what? Well done. It's not going to be our boss there. He's going to tell us well done or depart from me. So anytime we're doing the Lord's work, we must relentlessly focus on it. Our second principle, with the Lord's protection, we can wisely discern Satan's schemes. Discernment is key, and we see this in the middle part of uh, this passage when um, the conspirators sent Shemaiah to him. They were just they were just relentless. They were just coming. John MacArthur said this about discernment. Well, listen to this. He says, in its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the careful process of making, I'm sorry, is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an abi- ability to think biblically. He continues, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21-22 teaches that it is the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning. And Paul says in that verse, he quotes, Examine everything carefully, hold fast to which is good, abstain from every form of evil. The Apostle John issues a similar warning when he says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. According to the New Testament, discernment is not optional for the believer. It is required. We are called as believers to be discerners of truth and error, right and wrong. And we must make those distinctions that God has set forth. We know as believers, as our church and our churches like us, that the only truth in this world is found in Scripture. The Bible is the foundation of all truth. There's no truth outside of the Bible. All truth has its origins in Scripture. Between Genesis 1 and 1 and Revelation 22 and 21 is where the truth of God is found. And that is where we draw our discernment from. That's how we can detect and discern truth from error and right from wrong. We're going to talk about this uh, beginning, you know, Wednesday night with our uh, worldview Bible study. <coughs> but discernment is required. Paul says, hold fast again to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. You know, we just read in our response to reading this morning, you who love God hate what is what? Evil. That's discernment. We love God, we hate evil. We don't have anything to do with evil. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah. So we see this discernment. His enemies were relentless in their attempts to distract him and cause him harm. And they made five attempts to do so. He says this in verse 5. In the same way, sample it for the what? Fifth time. I mean, he just wouldn't let up with him. Y'all know people like that? They just, man, just stop, you know. (laughs) His enemies were relentless. 
Even Shemaiah, who was hired by Tobiah, he conspired against him. We see that in verses 10 through 13. They hired someone. It's, it's, it's almost like uh, the king, who was it, uh, in, in the book of Numbers, who uh, hired uh, uh, Balaam to go and prophesy against Israel, to curse them. <laughs> and guess what? God had turned that curse into to a blessing. He had turned it around. So this is kind of the same thing. Shemaiah went. They hired him. And, you know, they, they, they were just throwing in everything and the kitchen sink, as they say. So he was hired by Tobiah. But despite these attempts, guess what? The Lord gave Nehemiah discernment. And let's observe it here. Look at verses 8 and 9. So it says, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done. Because remember, they, they came with an open letter. They, they threatened him. We're going to go to the king with this. You, you're trying to set yourself up as king. And they had an open letter so that everybody could see it. And they, they basically tried to blackmail him to say, Yes, you're trying to make yourself king. You got all these prophets so they can, you know, proclaim your your kingdom. And we're going to let Artaxerxes know about this. But Nehemiah says, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. You're making this stuff up. That's great discernment. Great discernment. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. So he saw their plot. He saw right through it. He knew why they were trying to do it because he knew that if they succeeded, then hand, they would have gotten discouraged. They would have gotten discouraged. But he said, Lord, instead do what? Strengthen my hands. Essentially, the work of the Lord cannot cease because of the schemes of enemies. Because remember, the favor of the Lord and of the king was already upon him. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 18. His short prayer had acknowledged this fact. So why should he stop now when he's almost finished? And then verses 10 through 13, Nehemiah discerned the first prophecy of Shemaiah. When, when I, I went to the house of Shemaiah, uh, rather, the son of Deliah, of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And look at verse 12. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. That is great discernment. He saw that Shemaiah was trying to trick him into being a coward and taking refuge in the temple. And this would cause Nehemiah to sin against God by not having faith in him. And their unbelief would have led the enemies to taunt him. That's exactly what would happen. Because it says in verse 13, for this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid. He should be a coward and act in this way and sin. 
And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And they would have undermined Nehemiah's authority had they succeeded. So what made Nehemiah so discerning? How could we be more discerning? Raymond Brown said on this passage, the theologian Raymond Brown said, the time Nehemiah spent with God made him sensitive to divine guidance and warning. He was prompted by God to refuse the invitation, knowing that his enemies were set on his destruction. He spent time with God in his word, in prayer. And so he was able to know that this was error. Remember, discernment is being able to uh, determine between truth and error. And Spurgeon even said uh, between truth and half-truth, which is no truth at all. When we spend time with the Lord, we become aware of Satan's schemes. The Christian is not to be unaware of Satan's schemes. We're not to have our heads in the sand. Paul told the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians 2 and 11 that we are not ignorant of his devices or his schemes. I think because people have made a, uh, especially uh, unfortunately, in the, in the Pentecostal church, which I came out of, they, they made Satan out to be this all-powerful deity, which he's not. Satan has very limited powers. He, he's God's devil. He can only do what God allows him to do. But because people have an unbalanced view of Satan, they don't believe that Satan is behind every evil scheme that comes up against the church. But he is. Satan is behind the so-called transgender movement. And I say so-called because there's, there's no such thing. No one can change their sex. Satan is behind homosexuality. He's behind abortion. He's behind all these attacks. He's behind critical race theory and racism and sexism. He's behind anything that seeks to disrupt God's created order. It is all energized by Satan and his minions. All of it is. It is satanic. It's satanic to believe it. It's satanic to promote it. It's satanic to repeat it because you are participating in the schemes of the devil. We must not be unaware of Satan's schemes. And they come against us in various means. 1 Peter 5 and 8. Peter tells the persecuted church and, and us, be self-controlled and alert. I know some translations say be sober and be vig vigilant. Sober means being self-controlled, being aware. 
of yourself. And being alert, being vigilant. He says, your enemy, who do you say your enemy is? What's the antecedent? The devil. Who is your enemy, Christian? The devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the great enemies of Christians. He says, your enemy, your adversary, some translations say, the devil. He prowls or roams around like a what? Roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, or looking around for someone to devour. That is our enemy. He is always on the prowl for the weak believer. There are weak believers. And he is on the prowl for them. The ones who are not discerning. The ones who don't want to be seen as bigoted. And all these other pejoratives that they throw up against us. Those who can't tell truth from error or who are afraid to stand up for truth. But understand this, to fear the schemes of Satan is to not have faith in God. I'll say that again. To fear the schemes of Satan is not to have faith in God because you can't do both. You can't have faith in God and fear Satan. You can't do, th- you can't do those two things. It is impossible to do that. God warned Israel in the desert in Deuteronomy when they were discouraged in their hearts. It says here, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. This is recounting Israel's refusal to enter the land in the book of Deuteronomy, first chapter, beginning at verse 28. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. According to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that, all that God did for them. He says, for all that you did not believe the Lord your God. Who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents. To show you the way you should go in the fire by night and the cloud by day. So they did not believe God who made a way for them. Who showed them the way in the wilderness. Although God did all those things for them. So remember, to fear the schemes of Satan is to not have faith in God. They could not do both. Despite all that God did for them, guess what? They still didn't have faith in him. They still feared their enemies. They still feared that their size, they feared that they could not conquer this land, although God done these great things for them in Egypt and brought them out, although they saw it. They had fear of the schemes of the enemies. Also, to have a faith that God could bring them into 
and promised land. And you can't do those two things. And so we see here in Nehemiah this discernment that we must have as believers. One of the positive discernment is we can't fear Satan. Jesus even said to his disciples that in Matthew the 10th chapter, we're not to fear him who can destroy the body, but not the soul. Satan may come up against our body. He did it with Job. God took that protection from around him. Satan attacked his body. But guess what? Satan can do nothing to his soul because all of our souls belong to the Lord. Satan may attack us, but he cannot ultimately harm us. Jesus said, rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. Don't fear the schemes of Satan. Nehemiah didn't do it. He did not fear their threats at all. He was like, why am I going to the temple? Why do I need to go in there? <laughs> you know, and, and, and sin against God. And some people would rather, and it's sad to say, some Christians would rather sin against God than stand on biblical truth. They will. They'd rather sin against God because they're afraid of the reaction and the response of people. They're afraid of the heat. They're afraid of the furnace of the mob who hates God. They're so afraid that they're afraid to proclaim truth. But we must be more discerning than that. If we're the only ones left standing, proclaiming God's truth, then so be it. That should be our resolve as Christians as we discern the times and doing the Lord's work. We must not be afraid of their threats. We can't be. As a church, we're not going to be. I get to tell you that now from this pulpit. We have never been and will never be afraid to proclaim God's truth. We do it in love, but we do it nonetheless. It's not worth, because the thing is, once you start compromising, game over. It's a wrap. You compromise on one truth of God's word, that's it. It, 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 it just unravels everything. It's like you take that wound or thread that's tightly woven and, is, and the ends are sutured together. And as soon as you pull that suture out, it begins to slowly just unravel on its own. That's the way it is with truth. Once you compromise, that's it. It's a wrap. The church, unfortunately, has done that throughout the years. That's why we have apostate denominations. Because they compromised on the truth. And now look at them. They got rainbow flags hanging outside of their churches. They got Black Lives Matter banners up on the front of their churches. They have women pastors and women elders worshiping trees and, 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 and all this different thing. They, 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 they do a lot of stuff. Having services apologizing to, to nature and apologizing to, to trees because why? You compromise. And from there, 
it's a downward trajectory. And it doesn't happen suddenly. It happens over decades. Those apostate denominations, those apostate churches, they they started slowly. You look at them five years later, ten years later, you're like, what in the world are they doing? What in the world are they even saying? But when we don't discern, when we don't discern, that's what happens. We begin to think it's okay to kill babies in the womb. That it's a woman's right to choose. That abortion is health care. We begin to repeat those lies. Instead of saying and stand up as Christians and saying, no, abortion is murder. You're killing a baby. You're killing a human life. We'll say, no. Her body, her choice. No, it's health care. Health care for who? Not for the baby. But when you don't discern, when you compromise, I heard a preacher say this one time, um, a voted Balcom said this. It's, it's a simple statement. But he says, when you compromise, you are compromised. When you compromise, you are compromised. And when you are compromised, there's nothing you can do because you've compromised. You have nothing to stand on. Once you give up truth, that's it. You're done. As believers, we can't be that way. If Nehemiah had done this, if he gave in, do you think that work on that wall would have been finished? No, because he would have been what? Compromised. They were going to taunt him, give him a bad name, sin against God. He worried about his reputation, but he more so worried about the reputation of his God. And as believers, guess what? We must be about the same business. Preserving the Lord's reputation. Amen. Our last principle here. With the Lord's protection, we can completely accomplish his work with his strength. After all that opposition, they still finished the wall in a swift 56 days. And that's relatively fast even in antiquity. This was a work that only God could accomplish. And Nehemiah had acknowledged that in verse 16. That this had been accomplished with the help of our God. This was indicative of the type of man that Nehemiah was. He was one who feared God. And he was one who gave God glory at every turn. We don't see at any point where Nehemiah pointed to himself. But rather, he always gave glory to God. Throughout the whole rebuilding project, Nehemiah was determined to acknowledge, whether in speech or in writing, the source of his strength. He began, we began this book with the prayer in chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. He began in prayer. 
He acknowledged that the hand of the Lord was with him. We see that in uh, chapter 2, verse 8. I wrote down all the times up to this point uh, where Nehemiah acknowledged God. He talked about the gracious hand of God in chapter 2, verse 18. The God of heaven giving them success in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Remember the Lord in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. God frustrating the enemy's plans in chapter 4, verse 15. God fighting for them in chapter 4, verse 20. Walking in the fear of the Lord, chapter 5, verse 9. And God strengthening his hands in this chapter uh, 6, verse 9, where he said, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. So we see all throughout this book so far that Nehemiah feared God and gave him glory at every point because he knew that that's where his strength came from. What's the song? Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. It is God who gives us strength to make it each day. That's why it's good as much as we can. Pray for God's strength every single day. Before you go to work, whatever you're doing, even if you're retired, pray for God's strength. Lord, strengthen my hands this day. We're showing our dependence on God. We're showing that God alone is worthy of glory. We're showing that everything that we do this day can only be accomplished with the Lord's help. No matter how mundane, no matter if you know what you're doing or not, you still need the Lord's help. And that's what we are acknowledging when we're saying, Lord, strengthen my hands just for today. Lord, help me as I go to my job just for today today and you know as i always say that's one of those prayers that god will answer because you're confessing your dependence upon him and he will strengthen you throughout your day throughout scripture the lord is acknowledged as a source of strength for his people we see that all throughout the word of god the psalmist in psalm 28 and 7 says the lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Psalm 29 and 11. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Hebrews 13 verses 20 through 11. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. May God work in us, give us strength. That's what we plead for, the Lord to give us strength. He is the source for strength for his people. Christ also trusted in the strength of God, the Father, to accomplish his redemptive work in this world. Do you know that Christ prayed to the Lord? We're going to see in these passages right here that the source of Christ's strength to do God's work was prayer, prayer, prayer. Listen to these passages. Luke 4 and 42 through 44. Very, uh, very early in the morning, 
when it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went out to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So Jesus did what? He prayed before he did his ministry. Luke 5, 15 through 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Think Jesus going around healing people, preaching God's word, and throngs of people were surrounding him. But what did he do? He retreated at times, and Luke said it. He didn't just do it one time. Luke said Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, 12, and 13. On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. This is our Savior. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. So he prayed before he chose the 12. He didn't just choose them. He prayed before he chose them. Luke 9 and 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up unto a mountain, you guessed it, to pray. Luke 11 and 1. One day he was praying at a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Luke 22, 39 through 41. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall to temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. So Jesus also went to the Mount of Olives to pray. John 5 and 30, this is the last one. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just I seek not to please myself but him who sent me the one who sent me is with me he has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him he says I seek not to please myself but him who sent me and how does he do this through prayer Jesus trusted in the strength of God to accomplish his redemptive work in this world that was the, the humanity of Jesus. Remember, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. He was man. He suffered. He prayed. He grieved. He was troubled in spirit, just as we are. But what did he do? He prayed. He trusted in the strength of God the Father to accomplish his redemptive work in this world. For the Christian, we cannot do any meaningful work for the Lord in our own strength. 
or without acknowledging him as our source of strength. We, we, we just can't do it. How does he become our source of strength? Prayer and immersing ourselves in his word. As we spend time with the Lord in prayer and praying the scriptures, perhaps, the Lord gives us his strength as we petition him. He gives us strength as we cast our cares upon him. He gives us strength as we trust in the promise of his word. It's like a great exchange. As we trust in the Lord, as we pray to him, guess what he does? He gives us his strength. When we do our work for the Lord, we have a reservoir of strength to dip, dip into because God's reservoir of strength never runs dry. This pool of strength is always full. It is always overflowing. We just have to proverbially dip into it by prayer. Amen? And relying on his strength. And what are some gospel implications here? I have, uh, uh, yeah, I think three of them. Never be afraid of the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For those who believe, first of the Jew and also to the Greek. The gospel will always be met with opposition and lies. People are not going to want to hear that they need a savior. People are not going to want to hear that they are sinners and that their soul needs to be with the Lord, that they need salvation, that they cannot enter to heaven apart from salvation in and through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And when you say that, especially in our culture, people are going to look at you crazy. They're going to curse you. They're going to call you intolerant, narrow-minded. Old-fashioned. They're going to lie. When you say Jesus is the only way to God, no, he's not. Don't be afraid. The gospel will always be met with opposition. In the gospel, we find a Savior who subdues all his enemies. Christ defeated the greatest enemy that we faced, and that was death. Death is our greatest enemy. The Bible says the last enemy that was defeated was death. When he rose from the dead, he defeated death. That means the Christian has no reason to fear death. Christ subdued that. He seduces our mortal enemies too, those who come up against us. They will meet their end, saint. Be encouraged. They will meet their end. Don't think. Don't think that evil people are getting away with it. Don't think that. They're not getting away with it. David said in Psalm 37, fret not because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers or of, of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass. That's Psalm 37 and 1. 
Don't fret yourself. Don't worry because of evildoers or the workers of iniquity. They will be cut down. They will be tossed into the fire. Why? Because we have a Savior who will subdue all of his enemies. And lastly, the work of the gospel is one of restoration and renewal. It is one of restoration and renewal. The gospel restores. The wall being re- re- uh, rebuilt and finished was a picture of the restoration of God's people, the restoration of God's city. The gospel always renews and it always restores. The wall that was destroyed by the Babylonians was restored. It was finished. And that's what the gospel does. It, it restores and renews our sinful and broken lives. Amen. Then let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you use it to encourage the saints, encourage the faithful to be discerning, to trust in your strength, to rely on you as we go through each day, that we know, Lord, that all that we do is kingdom work, not just what we do in the context of church or religious duty, but, Lord, everything that we do, all that we do, is your work. And may we strive to do it to your glory. May we strive to do it in your strength. May we strive to do it with discernment. May we strive to do it with no distractions. Well, help us to put distractions aside and to focus on you and depend on you. And Lord, we pray for unbelievers who hear this message. They're being distracted by Satan. They're being distracted by their great need for a savior. I pray, Lord, that you use the ministry of your word and the the conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring them to repentance unto salvation. That you save them by your mighty hand. Father, bless your word. And thank you for blessing our time together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.